protector. He won't let anybody uh, hurt you. No, he won't. And I won't let that hawk get him if I can help it. All right. Let's see. Sorry, I'm getting text. Randy's trying to get in. Can't explain the password. All right. So Alan asked me last night where we were, and I couldn't remember, and I didn't have my books with me. But uh, I, I think we're in bowl seven. What's that? I wrote begin at bowl seven. That's what I thought. I couldn't remember if it was before that or after that. What chapter? Uh, chapter 16. Uh, I think we're verse 17. Se seven. That's what I thought too. Yeah. 17? Okay. That's what I thought. Wait a minute. So Linda, you like you always like the good news. You know what the good news is? That I'm reading. This well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> that this is the last bowl of wrath. <laughs> the last you're, one. You're on chapter 17? 16, verse 17. Okay, and I'm still on the wrong page. 16, verse 17. Bowl seven. Bowl seven, earthly, earth utterly shaken. That's a good one. That's, That's a bad well, it's, well, it's good it's the last one. <laughs> oh, oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if you remember, this is the... Um, Back in, uh, let's see, where was it? Is it 15? <coughs> yeah, back in 15, we had the Song of the Lamb, which okay. was, we've had sort of the scene of celebration come around. At that, time. that was the second time I believe it came around. And then you had in, in chapter 16, the voice coming from the temple telling the angels go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So that's, that's what we've been going through all through chapter 16 has been these bowls of wrath. Um, and we talked a little bit about being judgment. This is, this is the, it's, it's ugly and scary because this is the writing of all the wrongs. This is, this is the justice for all the injustice. Um, and now we're getting to the last one. So, but as we know in Revelation, right before it ends, it gets really bad, or at least really difficult. But we'll make the point here of, of who's it difficult for and why. So, who would like to read for us verses 17 through 21? I'll read. Okay. Bowl seven. Okay. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness. <coughs> then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Man, men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail since the plague was exceedingly great. Oh, that's bad. Well, let's kind see. Of. <coughs> well, how, the hail as big as a talent, that's really big, right? Yeah, mine says a hundred weight. Oh. oh. Well, mine said 75, but I'm good with a hundred. <laughs> Either it way, matter. if you get hit by one, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we we had about a, a two-minute hailstorm when we were in up in, on the island, and they were little little pebbles, but they sting. They hurt. Yeah, these are so hundred pounds. So 
boulders. So what's what's the overwhelming impression you get from this? Well, I, on verse 17, is it, I mean, it sounds like it's Christ on the cross saying it is finished. Yeah, actually, I just I looked that up while she was reading. It's not the same exact word in Greek, which is interesting, but the the sense is the same. Um, two different words, but um, the idea is it is finished. It's accomplished. So it's not it's not just it's ended, but when, when something is accomplished, the, there's something that was needed to happen, and then it's done. So yeah, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because think about that at the cross. What happened when when Christ said it is finished? Thunder, earthquake. Really? Yeah. So there's we've had hints before of the of the the crucifixion being at one point and, and from one perspective, it's it's awful. I mean, it's it's the worst thing the world has ever seen or done, and yet. It is also the same moment that salvation is accomplished. When Jesus says from the cross, it is finished, it's the act of salvation. Now, he hasn't risen yet, but what he needed to do was done. In a sense, his entering into death was that moment of, of conquering it, even before he came out of it. Um, so there is that idea of it's finished. Flashes of lightning, voices, peals of thunder, great earthquake, so great that um uh, has never been on the earth the great city was split in three parts and the cities of the nation yeah fell. it's like like the curtain was um split or the right. this reminds me of that crucifixion all this exactly stuff. good yep So yeah, that's the idea. It's great destruction. Now, where where is the destruction? We don't. When it says in verse nineteen, the great city, we don't necessarily know offhand what the great city is. But if you were living in the first century when this was written, what would the great city have been? Most probably Rome. Rome. That's the great city. I mean, we went to Rome a couple of years ago and. To, to see even just the ruins and how vast it was and, and the amount of buildings that were there, you know, um, amazing. And the fact that, that, um, that it was split into three, the cities and the nations fell and God remembered great Babylon. We talked about Babylon, you know, last time or the time before that Babylon is, there's the Old Testament Babylon, which was this enemy that, took the people of Israel um, into bondage, into, um, into exile. And it's often used in the, in the New Testament as sort of a, an example uh, referring to Rome. That's now going to do the same thing to the Christians. I so, thought Babylon here was a, a woman um, prostitute. Right. Yeah. So, so that was the image we had earlier on a, a chapter two ago. Um, you know, you think of that, of, of a prostitute as somebody, as a symbol of infidelity. So Rome, the great, the sort of archetypal city of the power of, of mankind, was also the place where these false gods were worshipped. You go through Rome and it's all, you know, temples to, to pagan gods. So, and then, you know, to include in that the emperor himself, who was considered a son of God or one of the, the divine. Um, and you get the idea that there's the power of Rome was built on a world without the true God. And that's Excuse the idea the of the harlot. Yep. You said it was a symbol of what? You just said that Babylon was a symbol of? Of, of Rome. Well, no, no, you, you had a different explanation. Um, and I just wanted to write that down because I'd never oh, heard that. Before. Well, the, well, the idea of Babylon, well, of Rome, both really, they they were great earthly powers, right? Built on gods that were not the true god. Yeah. So I understand all that, but the the word that you used escaped oh, me, and I wanted to write that forget. down. 
I don't remember. <laughs> if it comes to you, let Infidelity? me know. Infidelity? Is that it? Maybe that was it. Okay. Yeah, because that's that's the great sin, is infidelity, um, and it's 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 really at the heart of the message of, of Revelation because Revelation is going to say, on the one hand, to the people who aren't even attempting to follow the true God, that they're unfaithful because they are joining other gods, but it also turns that same sort of um, temptation to say that those of us that are following the true god we're also going to be tempted to be unfaithful and in the context of revelation that unfaithfulness is even with when you're threatened with your own life don't think that being unfaithful to god is a good option it's a terrible option mm -hmm. right so let's say you're a christian in the first century and and you're the one reading this letter from john about his revelation and you know you're under the threat of real persecution it's not a theory like we might say oh someday you know our government might come after the christians or you know remember back in the days of the cold war the soviets may come and you know we'd be have to take the church underground and what what revelation the message is is even with a, an imminent threat <coughs> to our living our faith even under the threat of death it's going to look like giving in and following in, get the mark of the beast, buy and sell, be a part of the system, um, give homage to the false gods, the beast and the dragon, and, and these that look so powerful. It's going to be tempting because of their power. And if you're a true Christian and you give in to that temptation, what's the sin you're committing? infidelity you're not being faithful to the true god and and how do we describe the true god way back back in chapter one christ was called the faithful witness or the faithful martyr he's the example of what it means to stay faithful because he went to his crucifixion alan it's not accidental what you're saying is you're recognizing what's going on here this is saying that there is a connection between the suffering of Christ, but not just his suffering, his fidelity in the face of suffering. In the fact that he could have escaped it, but he didn't, just like all the Christians under the threat of, of persecution, they can escape that persecution. They can escape the threat of death, but that's the bad deal. How do we know it's a bad deal? Look what happens here. The great city split, not just in two, but in three. It's even greater destruction. Than, than the curtain of the temple the cities of the nations fell and the and babylon was made to drain the cup of the fury of his wrath think about that that we're talking about these bowls of wrath the images is, is that god had his wrath stored for all the things that the people had done against him and against his people and now he's pouring out those bowls one by one upon the earth and here's the last one and he's you know, you get drain the cup, every last drop of it. And where it's, where's it going? It's going to Babylon. It's going to Rome. It's going to the one that appeared and thought herself so mighty. And she's going to make, he's making her drain the cup of the fear of his wrath. Let's get a, a couple of commentaries here. This is from Andrew Caesarea. We heard from him a lot. The angelic voice from heaven said, it is done. That is, the commandment of God has been accomplished. The flashes of lightning and the voices and the thunders are symbolic of the terrifying nature of these occurrences and of the future coming of Christ, just as long ago they announced the descent of God upon Mount Sinai. Um, you may remember, on if you come to, uh, to Royal Hours on uh, Holy Friday, one of the Old Testament readings is the reading of the uh, story of an Exodus when, when Moses led the people to Mount Sinai and God is telling them, prepare the people. They should be fasting. The men should stay away from the women. And there was fire and lightnings upon the, the mountain, Mount Sinai. So there's a connection there. And what was about to happen? God is about to come 
and announce his law. This is an idea of a, the coming of, of divine pronouncement. Um, a couple ideas on this on this three parts. There's different uh, there's different interpretations. Here's one. Uh, one part will be of the Gentiles, another of the heretics and the Jews, and the third part, which is the false brothers, which is of the false brothers, is rejected. For they confess to know God, but they deny Him by their deeds. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good deed. So that interpretation is. Everything among those that are broken are the unfaithful ones, just different kinds. The Gentiles, those that were of the church, the heretics, but left, and the Jews in the, in the second part. The third part is the false brothers. They confess no God, but they deny him. So they're still they're part of the church, but they're not faithful by their actions. Another interpretation, this is from... Uh, Caesareus, he says, the great city is to be understood as in general, every people that is under heaven and that is seen to be in three parts when the church is divided. So the Gentiles are considered one part, the heretics and false Christians are another part, and the Catholic church is the third part, small Catholic. Remember Catholic in the old idea is not the Roman Catholic church, there's one church. And one of the names that church is called is, is Catholic as a description of it. So that's the true church. It's the universal church. Um, so there, what one difference in that interpretation is it's divided into, into three. Now we think about division um, or broken, broken into three. One of the ideas is it's sort of like you're being sorted. When things are broken, it's like you got three different piles of what's left or three different groups and in this interpretation he includes the the catholic the christians meaning this is this is how they get distinguished but it it, it also implies that they're not going to be exempt from at least an aspect of the suffering and this this idea of do, you, do the Christians suffer in what's often called the Great Tribulation, the sufferings at the end of the world? Um, Protestants have divided over that for decades. Do Christians suffer? Are they taken out before the suffering comes? For us, we know that the Christians suffer because it is their being susceptible to martyrdom that is going to define at least the ones that we can say they're really the true Christians. And you'll see this towards the end. Um, anybody here remember the game of life? Yeah. You, know, you start the game and you go out a few pieces and you decide, am I going to um, you know, college or not? And you get to the end and there's the, you take the quick way out or you take the longer way. If let's say you're not doing so well and you might need to make some more money, you take that longer way hoping you might use that time to, to be able to win the game. That's sort of the idea that we'll get to. And I've got to say too much now because we'll get to it later. But Revelation is saying, if you want to be sure that you end up on the right side, you end up in the kingdom, around the throne, with the elders and all that heavenly scene, then you are with those who Revelation has already showed you already there. We've, when we looked at the 144,000, we looked at uh, those who had stained their robes um, red with blood and had cleaned them by the red. In other words, who do we know is going to end up on the side of God and the side of salvation? Without question. The martyrs. The martyrs. Wow. All right. That's your proof. That's That's the... What's your, what's your certification? Your martyrdom. And in fact, understand that in, in the early days of the church for centuries, um, the only saints that recognized as saints were the martyrs. Because the proof of their Christian life and faith was the fact that they would accept even the ultimate sacrifice. And so there was no question. That's why we, we call them saints. That's why we declare them to be in the kingdom. It's the saints are the only people that the church ever, in a sense, pronounces judgment. No, we don't pronounce a judgment, we recognize the judgment. 
We, 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 we canonize them. We write their icons. We sing their hymns. Um, all as a testimony of the fact that they are with God in the kingdom. And one of the reasons we can do that is the fact that in Revelation, the martyrs... Oh, get an echo here. <laughs> Brittany, you sit next to your dad. Wait a minute. That's either Alan or Brittany. He's sitting next joined. to you? No. I am... I went from my phone to my computer. Oh. Somebody's tripping out. You can turn off one of them. But I don't know why my picture's not up there. It's a nice sound effect, though. It's still Talking there. about judgment. It's like a reverb chamber. You see, yeah. is it reverb? Voices and peals of thunder. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Thank you. Who for said that. Bible study can't be fun? <laughs> good production value. Um. But, but yeah, so you get the idea that the martyrs, they, we know where they are because Revelation tells that story repeatedly, that they're there. And we're going to see at the end, there are others who will come, but it's not the direct quick route. It's, it's going through uh, other difficulties. Yeah, so all that to say, we, don't, we cannot say for sure that the Christians avoid this. In fact, we would say that this suffering is going to separate and saint uh or caesar Jesus, that's his, his interpretation it, it separates those that suffer and are condemned and those that suffer and are purified by it we've talked about that before that fire can burn and fire can purify uh let's see Well, in between things, What's that? Again. what uh, what verses are we on right now in chapter? We 17? are in chapter sixteen, verses seventeen oh, to twenty-one. Okay, thank you. No problem. This is from Andrew Caesarea again about the hailstones. We think that the hail that comes down from heaven is the wrath from God, which also comes from above. That this hail weighs a hundredweight indicates the completeness of its fearful torment on account of the extremity and seriousness of the sins, which the image of the talent suggests in a Zechariah saw. And there's a reference to a prophecy there. Um, that those who are smitten by this hail are moved to blasphemy rather than to repentance reveals the unyielding hardness of their hearts. And so they will be like Pharaoh, or rather they will be even more intransigent than he was, for at least to some extent was softened by the plague sent from God and confessed his own ungodliness. But these persons will blaspheme even in the midst of being tormented. Remember that the, the, the chapter ended with um, uh, so the hail drops from heaven till men cursed God for the plague of the hail. So fearful was that plague. So in a sense, you're seeing two aspects of completeness. On the one hand, it's the completeness of destruction. Cities broken, 100-pound hailstones, and the completion of their, the intransigence of even when God is showing his power to that degree, they don't repent. They curse him. Hearing the cat somewhere. <laughs> Any questions on that section? Father? Yeah. On verse 20... Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Yeah. 
What island are they are they referring to a real island? If the city was Rome, are they geographically correct here? Well, what? it's not just Rome. Um, what he's saying there is that this yes, the great city is broken. Um, every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. In other words, you know, complete destruction, complete utter power is unleashed. Um, so it's not just, it's not limited to Rome, but he's making a point of saying even the great power of Rome is going to fall. Yeah, and there's a couple of different interpretations of the islands. Some take it literally. Um, there's one here, it says, um, by islands, he speaks of the Gentile churches. As the prophet says, the Lord has reigned, let the earth be glad, let the many islands rejoice. He calls them islands because they lifted their heads and rose above their bitter and distasteful idolatry. Um, and this one says, he refers to demons when he mentions the mountains. Even the holy psalmist says, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, for he is coming. So, yeah, there's, there's both a literal and sort of figurative interpretation of it. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Any other questions on chapter 16? <clears throat> All right, let's go on to 17. And you're going to hear in the very first word, then. So there's a continuity. Again, the Bible was not originally written in chapters. The author doesn't say, okay, I'm done with this chapter, one the next. One continuous text. Um, and so we know that what's going to be written here is just a continuation of what we've heard. So would somebody read for us uh, verses 1 through 5? Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth. Were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wild wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of ab abominations and the filthiness of her fornications. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the harlots and of the ab abomination of the earth. Okay, so we're going to get more description of in a sense, why Babylon receives such harsh treatment. Because So here's the angel, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said, come, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot. He's going to say, in other words, here's why she's being judged the way she is. So she's the great harlot who's seated upon many waters. What does that mean? Maybe symbolically, there's uh, more than one harlot, and she's in a lot of different places on the earth. Or, or just that, yeah, she's she's one, but she, her her influence goes all over the place. Okay, she's got a seat all over. You know, many waters. You think about you know, typically oceans connect distant places, and so she's seated upon many waters. Um. With so does whom, that mean there's a lot of harlots? Well, it says the great harlot, but she's so great in the sense of her reach and power that it goes upon many waters. I mean, she's her influence is all over the place. The footnote says Rome in the Orthodox Study Bible. Yeah, that's that's generally the idea of of the direct interpretation in terms of the original meaning. Okay. Um, but it's interesting, a lot, the commentators will always 
some will, will refer to that, but they're also going to say that always keep your eye on um, where Rome or any earthly power, if they're being powerful without God, that's, that's the main problem. That's the main sin. And a lot of them will even talk about these being, you know, demonic powers. And at that time, so Rome was powerful, but what else was there at that time? At that time, nobody could compare to Rome. Okay. Right. And then it even gets a little more clear in verse two, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Um, how, how do vassal kingdoms work? You think about when somebody comes and conquers a, a kingdom, but they leave the king in place. How does that work? He has to serve the head, the ones that conquered him. Even though he's still in charge of his own country, he's answerable to the, the head. Exactly. Okay. And so who, who fills that role in, in Judea at this time, at the time of Jesus? Herod. Herod. Okay. So you had King Herod, like you had lots of kings and, and, and rulers around the world. Rome wouldn't just come out, come out and kill everybody. That's, that's inefficient because if you kill all those leaders, now you got to put in people to do all that governing. So what does Rome do in Judea? We have a good example of, because we have a lot of information because of the gospels Rome comes in conquers, leaves Herod in place, but also who else also gets sent to Judea in the first century of the town of Christ. From Rome. Peter? No. Starts with a P, though. Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. Very good, Elaine. Oh. Yeah. So you have a governor. You know, remember in the Gospels, talk about, and, and, and Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, what was he there to do? He was there not to necessarily govern the people directly. There was some of that going on. He was there to keep Herod in line. Okay? So here's Herod. And we, again, we get a good example of this because of the Gospels. Christ will come and appear before Herod. And Herod should have been the one who was most faithful to God. All right? And what's his main complaint from the time Jesus is born until the time he later meets him? at his, his trial, that Jesus is making himself out to be the king of the Jews. And there's a, there's a verse, it always gets me. I, I choke up when I read it and, and during Holy Week, when the people, the, the chief priests go to Pilate, they want Jesus killed and crucified, but they can't do it without Pilate's agreement because Pilate is the governor. They're not, the, gov the, the local government is only in charge by virtue of their of being obedient to, to Rome. And, and Pilate says, you know, shall I kill your king? Because Jesus was, had been called the king of the Jews. Do you remember what the people answered, what the, the chief priests answered? We have no king but Herod. Well, no, close. Or Caesar, rather. Caesar, yes. We have no king but Caesar. The ultimate betrayal of 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 god because god always wanted to be their king they wanted a king so god gave them first saul and then uh david and um and then they have their whole line of kings so when they say we have no king but caesar you can see where their infidelity is is really obvious and that's that's the infidelity it says the kings of the earth have committed fornication they should as a king who who is supposed to anoint the king or who's who, who gives the king their power, supposedly? God does. From God, right? When, we, when the kings and the queens of England and others are anointed, that's the anointing from God. It's divine. It's the bishop who does that as a, a, a instrument of God. So uh, their, their role is to be faithful to God, and God will protect the people. But here he's saying, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. In other words, they became unfaithful to God, fornicating with Babylon, with the great harlot. Well, I have a question. 
It's on topic, but kind of off topic. Yeah. It, the Bible seems to make a lot of references to harlots, prostitutes, fornication, all that stuff is a um, symbolism of, of bad, I guess, or, or not doing good. Yes. Why is that? It just seems like it's an... It, that's a great insight. And why do you think? Why? Because and when, it, when it's condemning it, it's condemning actual physical, like sexual relationships, right? Right. But based on what we're reading now, why do you think God <clears throat> spends so much time talking about fornication and sexual purity? Because it's about a betrayal, maybe? Yeah. And it's a sin. And because sexual fidelity, according to St. Paul, is a symbol a man and a wife in 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 marriage is a symbol of what obedience to god say again obedience obedience to god yeah we hear the epistle at the wedding service that paul says i but i speak concerning christ in the church in other words literal infidelity sexual infidelity fornication and all the rest why it's so bad is that in sexual purity, in, in, in celibacy, which is fidelity to God, or in a marriage, keeping the marriage faithful, being faithful to your spouse, are both living images of fidelity to God and God's fidelity with us. So when that gets broken, we sully that image which is one of the closest images of god's relationship with us and that's why god treats it so seriously on the literal side because the symbol gets broken but here you can see on the actual side of the, of the relationship with god they, they're going to receive they're going to he's going to drain the wrath on those who commit fornication in other words who who sell out their fidelity to god to buy into the power of rome or we could extend by any other earthly power. When we when we sell out God because we want to give power to an earthly power, it's we're being unfaithful. We are to use the scripture word fornicating because we're being unfaithful to God. So yeah, that's it, it's a good insight, Alan. Like, why is that such an important issue? Why is it talked about so much? And that's why because fidelity to God is the key issue of the scriptures. From Genesis, right? How does Genesis begin? Adam and Eve in the garden. God has placed them there. He gives them everything they want. And instead of being faithful to his word, they commit spiritual fornication. They are unfaithful to God. and They listen to the serpent. Then we'll go through the entire Old Testament and watch the people of Israel be faithful to God, be unfaithful to God, faithful to God, unfaithful to God. Do you remember the story of um, the prophet Hosea? You remember oh, the story yeah. from the Old Testament? What does God tell yeah. Hosea to do? He has to marry a prostitute. You remember her and, name? And be faithful to her. You remember her name? I always laugh at this. I can't. I Gomer. Can't, I can't, that's right. <laughs> Yes, the American prostitute it? whose name is Gomer. Gomer. <laughs> Golly! You're naughty. Remember Gomer Pyle? Good buddy. Yeah. So, all, and then they get to the New Testament. And what is Christ going to criticize mainly the Pharisees and the Sadducees? That in in misleading the people, they are turning the people, um, allowing them to be unfaithful to God in, in lieu and, and in place of it, they're loyal to the Pharisees, not loyal to God. All right. And at Christ's ultimate act of wrath, it's a, the time we see him really, the only time we see him really angry was what? When did he get the, the most angry that we, that we see? The money changers. In the temple. So he takes ropes and he makes whips out of them and he literally chases them out of the temple, whipping them. Why? Because they turned his 
temple, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. Mm -hmm. In other words, instead of the place of ultimate fidelity to God, people were there to make money for themselves. So fidelity to God is going to be the great um, message from the scriptures, beginning to end. Faithfulness, being true, being uh, single-minded, not being divided, not having our attentions divided or split. And that's why, to get back to your question now, that's, that's why those sins are taken so seriously, because God has empowered that as one of the chief images for his union with us. Yeah, when we get to Holy Week, right? Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, this last year, Wednesday night, when we could have unction, we have the bridegroom matins. Behold, the bridegroom cometh at midnight, and blessed is he whom he shall find awake. Mm -hmm. That fidelity, and you get this all through, through Holy Week, you have sort of that parallel of meaning of Christ and his progression to the cross. And on that sort of note, his going to the cross is the ultimate expression of his fidelity to his father. Right? Thursday night, he's in the garden, praying so hard, he's sweating drops of blood. Let this cup pass, if it be possible, but if not, thy will be done. So Christ on the cross, there's all kinds of meetings that are important. One of the ones that we recognize the least is his ultimate fidelity and loyalty and obedience to God, the Father. Even to the point of death. And then he's going to say to us, if you want to come after me, like we talked about in our, our series on, on, on oppression and, and despondency, we have to pick up our own cross. We have to enter into our suffering with God, being loyal to him. Even when there's suffering there, we still pick up the cross. So... So it's an important point. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. And it's, it's other interesting too, especially in this section of, of chapter 17. Unfaithfulness always appears to those tempted by it to be a good thing. Right? I, I was watching this Netflix series. Uh, Hillary Swank plays a, uh, an astronaut. She's heading the team... The first trip going to Mars. <clears throat> and there's the Chinese astronaut who's been tempted into a relationship with uh, another woman before they, she takes off on the trip. And this episode is all about, about that going on. And, you know, is she going to be faithful to her husband? She's married. She's had a, a kid. And, um, but, but faithfulness is, is really the key, the, key, uh, the key message of the Christian life. No matter what. Father, yeah. Father, um, the other thing is, is that um, most of us have, you know, that sexual drive and that um, it's a choice whether we stray or whether we remain faithful. Choose, you know, am I going to do this or am I going to stay faithful to my vows? Yep. So why? Oh, I just started to say this. I didn't complete the thought. I'm glad you brought me back to it. Why, when the temptation strikes, why is it a powerful temptation? Be it's because it appears good. It appears pleasurable. I mean, you talk to people who, who have gone through you know, infidelity in marriage. It's not typically just about sexual temptation. It's part of it. But it's about, I'm not getting what I need from my spouse, and I look elsewhere for it. And so it oh, looks right. like the solution. It looks like right. salvation. Right. Pleasurable. Yeah. And, and beyond just physical pleasure, but somebody appreciates me, somebody I can really be intimate with in every way, and someone understands me. There's all that. But it's all a lie. <laughs> it appears to be the solution but it's always a lie, right? Yeah. Here, 
to get back to the, the point of what we're reading, this fornication with the kings, for those kings, it looks really good. Like, oh, I can be aligned with Rome and Rome will keep me in power? I mean, Herod had the power of, of the Roman Empire to keep him in power. I mean, there was, any king is always in danger of somebody else coming along and toppling them. Typically, another family member, right? Somebody close by. Uh, what's well, his name? A lot of Game of Thrones. What's that? You watch a lot of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but a lot of that goes on, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, what's the guy in North Korea? Kim Jong Un. Yeah. Killed his, his uncle. It was his uncle? Because he heard a rumor that the uncle wanted to take over, so off he goes. So, Father, in this chapter seventeen, in the beginning, what we read here when they speak of fornication, they're not necessarily speaking of specific fornication as we see it between a man and a woman and infidelity. They're speaking anybody who is being unfaithful to God, correct? Yes. Okay. So it's, which is it's why that literal infidelity in marriage and in sexual immorality is so bad because it ruins that image that that relationship is supposed to be there. Okay. Every, every marriage, and you think about it, marriage is, is the one institution that guarantees our species continues the way God wanted it to. So God's intention is that either through a life of dedicated celibacy, whether in the monastic role or not, through that dedication and fidelity or the fidelity of a husband and wife together, every generation is going to be given, ideally, an image of the kind of sacrificial love and purity that God desires with us. And so why does he do it? Why does he so um, harsh on it in that literal sense is because it ruins this. It ruins the image of what God wants. And so when the Kings commit fornication, it's not necessarily literally it's they're selling out, being unfaithful to God, selling out to the people of Rome typically for their own security, pleasure. Safety. I mean, Rome would, would, would give vast wealth to these vassal kings and queens. Um, look how she's arrayed, right? This woman. Um, yeah. Purple and scarlet, bedecked with gold and jewels, holding on a golden cup. But what's in it? Abominations and impurities. So it looks powerful and biting, but it's it's all it's all the lie of sin, which always promises and never fulfills. Well, and the one important thing about the color purple is that it would in those days it was a very expensive thing to create, and so only rich people or kings or royalty could could afford it. Yeah, that was the, so. That's a symbol in color right there. What do we think of when we think of purple in the church? What do we associate it with? Lent, uh, yeah. the the passion of Christ. Yeah. So are we associate because that's that's purple is the color of Lent. But what what Deborah is saying is exactly why purple is. It's not because it's a dark color. That's that's part of why we use it. But Lent is the time to prepare for the coming of the King. So when the king would come to your town, you would hang up all the banners and you'd decorate because the king was coming. You had to, to, to decorate the city in the color of the coming king. So you use that expensive cloth, which um, Deborah's talking about, not because it's sad. I mean, we, we, it is a dark time, in a sense, as our repentance, but it's royal. Purple is the color of royalty because it is expensive. It's the most expensive color to, to do because you need two other expensive colors, right? You got to bring expensive red and typically more expensive blue. And you got to get both to get purple. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. Oh, so I, I just want to make sure I, I finish the point here. So infidelity always appears good. So when these kings are, are giving an infidelity, it's not just because they're evil by nature. It's because they saw a promise from an earthly source and they took it. Yeah. And that's, that's their sin, that they, that they gave in 
to the need for security and safety or pleasure and any of those combinations. And they sold out their fidelity for those things. Okay. And again, remember I said to you, Revelation is about, it's a, it's a judgment against the people that have done that. And it's a warning for us in the church to stay faithful who might be tempted. Mm -hmm. Right. They call you before the tribunal and the governor and the soldiers are there. And they've got the boiling pot of, of tar or whatever it is they're going to torture with. You're going to be tempted to give in to the safety of an earthly power. But that safety is always a lie. Because that power looks powerful, like we've said over and over again. But in the end, it's going to crumble. And here we see it in chapter 16. The city is broken into three. It's literally like just smashed and crushed. But it doesn't look that way. Salvation by earthly means never looks bad. It's always going to look good. And what's the warning of Revelation? Be watchful. Don't be deceived. These kings were deceived. Well, it's all, it, I can see some of the king, the different kingdoms that were taken over, you know, they were fearful for their lives. Right. So, and so it wasn't necessary. The conquered ones were afraid more than that. This is something alluring than what I want. Exactly. It's not just pure pleasure. It's, it's survival even, but by a means that's different than the survival given by God. Right. Because remember from the beginning, we've said revelation is going to show us you've got two choices. You can save your life here. Well, you can save it there. But when you save it here, what did Jesus say? If he would save his life, we'll lose it. So by, you know, by these kings will say, well, we did the, we did the, the prudent thing. Rome King Long said either we're going to destroy you or you give in and join us. They gave in and joined. Now, it's interesting. We know how the story ends historically because this is written in the first century, Right. By the time John even dies, the author of the book, he's not going to see the destruction of Rome. Rome is at its height when John is writing this. But we have the benefit of hindsight of history. We know that Rome will eventually literally be in, 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 in shambles. It will be in ruins. You go to Rome today, you don't see it. You see a lot of, of well, you see, you see ruins. <laughs> You don't go to see buildings that are still intact. You go to see, if you can find them, the foundations, pillars on the ground. You know, so we, we see, it with the benefit of hindsight, what, uh, what John at the time was writing couldn't have seen, except for in the Revelation. He saw that in the uncovering of, of the apocalypse. All right, any closing questions? I have a question for you, Father, but not about this. Okay. <laughs> so I'll let everybody else ask their question first. Okay. Anybody? I mean, we can't stay out and listen. <laughs> uh, no, you can, you can, because it's you probably know the answer. <laughs> um, in the um, newsletter this week, there is a section to... Um, listen to a um, an online chat about um, the Jesus prayer. Yeah. Uh, from California. Right. And I never knew that the purpose of the prayer rope was to count the number of times you say the Jesus prayer. Yep. Like a meditation. That's what the monks told us. It's like a meditation. Yeah. And so what do you do? You just kind of move your thumb or finger each little yeah. knot? Yeah, and actually the way, the way it works is that it allows you to not necessarily count, but to continue. That's the goal. The goal is to keep praying, so not to get distracted. And so the, the thumbing of the rope, not after not after not, mine's still upstairs, but... Um, is, is right here. <laughs> a, a motion you can do without having to count because count takes mental space. 
So the idea is that by this very simple basic motion, with every time you say the prayer, you move your thumb, you go to the next knot, it keeps, it allows you not to have to think about the counting. Ah. And the goal is not to like complete it in the sense of like, okay, I got my minimum done. It's to keep going to the, the, the level of your rule, which is ideally given to you by, by a, a spiritual father. Um, so that you're you're doing it out of obedience to um, to keep going to the level that you figure out together is what you really would be good for you to do. That's the goal. Is that kind of like the Catholic discipline of saying the um, rosary? The rosary? Yeah, very similar. Except ours is a lot shorter. Well, you have all kinds. I'll show you one somebody gave me. Hang on a second. But they also have different prayers that they say at, it's divided up into sections of 10. And at the end of each section of 10, there's a special prayer you pray there. Is that the rosary? Somebody gave this to me as a gift. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. That's a hundred, isn't it? That's a hundred, yeah. 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 So you've got hundreds, you've got- Well, that's the, one that Father, that's the one that Father David showed in his video. Did he? I didn't yeah, get that far not, in it yet. I just started it. Yeah, they do 33. Like a, a normal one is 33. And then they have 50s. I think we have 50s and 33s in the bookstore Yeah. for sale. And then, yeah, there's 100 knots too. Yeah. I think so the uh, idea is yeah. as, as you're going through it, you don't have to think, you know, am I done? Because when you get all the way around, let me skip ahead here, you're going to get to it. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there's, there's the end. And the idea is so you don't have to be thinking yeah. about that. You can just stay in the prayer while you're doing that very simple sort of fingering motion. Yeah, I just never knew that. And he was talking about um, uh, the the Jesus prayer and and starting with 30 and going to 50 and then going to 100. And then when you're done with that, you can say 50 um, prayers to the Theotokos. And I just never knew that. Yeah, this one doesn't have beads in between. Sometimes... Like Randy was saying, they'll have a bead after a certain number. Maybe Deborah, maybe you said it. And mm -hmm. so for some people, when you get to the bead, you might say, Most Holy Theotokos, save us. You might say the Lord's Prayer. This is the bead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, mine is really tiny. I, I, I've forgotten. I think it's almost 50, but it's little, teeny, tiny, tight ones. Yeah. I think they came from a monastery somewhere in Mount Athos or something like that. And somebody gave me theirs when it was, they'd had it for a long time. I don't know if you can see this. They're already spaced out, right? Yeah. Yeah. The idea yeah. is that you don't space it out. You don't pull on it. You don't push her. You, but that over time, those, they become separate because of the use of literally like pulling past them to the next one. Right. So that that's the goal is that you don't, you don't do that, but eventually they become, the knots become more distinct because, you know, when, when you, when it's made, if it's made well, the knots are like pushed against right. each other. Right. They're, they're very tight in those space between. Yeah. And, and the goal is to it. not force it, but to use it enough that eventually they become more and more distinct. Mm -hmm. As much as we've talked about making prayer ropes, whether the village or Soyo. I think they did them at the convention last year. Um, maybe the Bible um, youth program or something. And I never knew that it was affiliated with the Jesus yeah, prayer. Right. So, well, thank these, are, you for these that. are things that we weren't necessarily taught when we were younger. It was, you know, we've, we've, we've grown a lot in our understanding of the faith as, as the church sort of has come into its own in this part of the world. You know, there was that move, moving across an ocean and setting up a new life from an old culture. A lot gets, I wouldn't say lost, but, you know, you, you're, you're, it's sort of like when you're traveling, you only bring so much with you. It's when you stop and you settle that you sort of rebuild your, your culture. And in the culture of the church, you know, I mean, 30 years ago, we didn't have, I think there were two monasteries in the whole country. And now there are a few places in the country that you have to go more than two or three hours to find a monastery. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, well, we all there. remember our grandfathers having the, the beads, but we just thought it was something that he 
use to pass time or fidget with, you know, like uh, yeah. today you use a little ball to um, press on to, you know, relax you and stuff. And yeah, never and there's, was there's a similar with, one that the Muslims use. I was never affiliated with the prayer. I didn't know that. Right. And this is where the reason why it's, it's confused is that the Muslims, you'll see them, they'll have the, and typically they're made of metal. And I don't know if there's any spiritual significance, but they play with them. You'll see these, the these guys. The Greeks do that too. The Greek men do that. We used to see them sitting in the cafe, drinking coffee, playing checkers or whatever. And they're just, they're switching them all over and just fiddling with them. Yeah. And I don't really think there was any prayers going on. Yeah. And I don't even know if there is even intended in, in the Muslim tradition, but you'll see them with those metal ones. And, and so that's why when we saw even our own people having them, we didn't necessarily know there was a spiritual significance to it because they were, for them, it was just something to play with, you know, keep your hand busy. Yeah, they called them worry beads. Yeah, in yeah, Greece. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you had something to fidget with, I guess. Right. How many icons do you have, Deb, behind you? Well, I have a lot. They're not all. I didn't do them all. But I've probably got about, I don't know, 15 or 17 in here. That you've done? Yeah, and I gave, I've yeah. given probably almost that many away. Yeah. Yeah. So, some of them I've Thank got prints, but some that I that I made copies of before I gave them away. But um, the rest of them, I don't have copies of. So, well, thank right, you, I'm gonna get going. I've got a meeting to get to, but good to see you all. All right. Okay. Thank, thank you, Father.